0: Welcome to Cross Streets, a podcast about race, culture, and soul care. My name is Brittany Bongiorno.
1: I am Chris Burton. We are friends living in Brooklyn with a passion for empowering people and a collective mission for racial justice and community healing. On today's episode, you will hear an interview with Ron. Be sure to listen to the end or Britt and I will have a discussion.
2: My name is Ron Taylor. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Back in the... uh, Late 50s, early 60s, Uh, of course, it was during the civil rights movement. And I lived in an extended family with my grandmother and my grandfather. They basically were, kind of raised me. My mother was working constantly. And uh, when uh, she had me, she was very young. I had, my grandfather was somebody that I really uh, could look up to and learn a lot from. Just having uh, someone like that around, for me, was very important when I was a kid. I understood that it wasn't um, so simple the situation with the race thing. One thing I did learn though, that I couldn't trust people because when I was a kid, I was in a situation where someone was robbed and I, they said, oh, the cops said, oh, we just want to find out if anyone has seen anything suspicious. And me being very naive, I would go up to the person and I said, well, I'm, I'm, I was here, but you know, I didn't see anything and of course the cops grabbed me and. uh threw me against the car and basically uh, tried to pretend like I might've had something to do with it. At the time I was probably like eight years old, something like that. So I learned then that I couldn't trust people. That's what I learned. But at the same time, they asked the woman who was robbed if I was involved with that situation. She said no. And she was a white woman and she basically saved me from being taken away by the cops. So I learned a lot just from that situation that one person could, be, could do this and another person could do that. So even though it was very segregated and, and it, of course, a lot of bad things were happening, still it wasn't like we thought that all white people were bad people. But that's, that was when I learned more, you know, because that affected me more. I mean, I always knew that uh, being a black person uh, was very dangerous because of the, when the, when uh, I was trying to help to solve a situation that I thought I might be able to help solve a problem, I, I realized that they didn't call me to solve a the problem, they called me to use me as someone to, to blame. And since it was so segregated, and it was a lot of poor people, I always felt like I had so much more than a lot of other people, because I did have a stable family, you know, and there was no, of uh, uh, like violence in the family. It was not perfect by any means, but it was some. It was a, it was a very stable and, and we were people that was, wanted to do things, you know, and was striving to do things. So I had some good influences in my life, uh, but I didn't really feel it as much until as I was getting older, because it was since it was so segregated, you didn't see a lot of white people, but whenever we would go into an area where there were, White people, of course, you, uh, you, you are your target. You know, people always, you always felt people not trusting you, people, you know, not wanting you around, basically. If you go to a store, the, the shop, there were always people right away, what do you want? I mean, they didn't, really, they didn't really want you there, and you know it, you know what I mean? So you, you always knew that you were not wanting to, you didn't, no one wanted you to be in these places. You were just a, a problem for a lot of people. They would lock the doors, the car doors, you know, things like that, so. But basically it was all segregated, so you didn't see a lot of white people. And in fact, I remember one time I was staring because I saw a white person, they looked so strange to me, you know? At that time, it was a it was very uh, intense because that was during the Civil Rights Movement. So that was when there was a lot of, things that were very exciting going on too because people were starting to um, open their own businesses sometimes. And because you because found that people were starting to do things, and having more, a few more rights and, uh, uh, and they were starting to fight for the rights war because it was a situation where it was, it was either Martin Luther King was, was, some people were getting a little bit uh, fed up with the uh, idea of uh, turning another cheek you know, some people were saying, no, this is getting, it was getting a little bit, uh, uh, they felt like they were, it was not enough progress happening. To me, I felt people were a lot more together. They weren't totally together, but I felt there's a lot more together. I felt like because uh, people were more similar and things a lot different now because people have a lot more different situations. But m- most of us had this, a very similar experience at that time. Uh, and I felt excitement in a way, because I felt like things were starting to happen, actually. First of all, uh, Rosa Parks on the bus, she, didn't, she refused to get off the bus, and there was a whole big deal where people were bar- boycotting, and they was using their money to, 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 uh, to make change, because that's where people change, when the money is taken away. So I saw how people were using what they had in order to make change. You know? You know, when you think about how it used to be, like people had no rights. And so now people were starting to exercise their rights and some, some change was starting to happen. People just being aware of what they need to do because I could see how uh, uh, people were working together sometimes. You know, and, and not just black people, but you know, I know white people were involved And that's how the whole thing worked, because people could work together, because you couldn't do it alone. You know, you have to respect everybody, you know. I remember when I was growing up, I saw some kids, photographs of kids in the marches, and it's so, so, but it was very dangerous. So I remember I, I I didn't go, and a lot of people did not go with the kids, but the older people would go. Uh, but my family members w- did, and there were some uh, always problems, like on the bus, because at that time, you couldn't ride on the front of the bus, and you had to get up if a, if a, um, if a white person got on the bus. You had to get up. So at that time, they were changing that rules, and so most of the black people went to the back of the bus. And so it was just these things, and, they, and I remember be, you could go, and it was segregated, and it was, you could only go to certain places still. And you and even when I went back, there were still signs up, you know, like it was colored only because that was when I was a kid, you were colored. And then we had you were like a uh from colored to Negro, uh to African American to black. So I was, you know, I'm as versatile because it just colored. And so uh I've, when I was growing up there, it was always uh just uh, very Yes, the race because people didn't, you know, uh, trust each other, you know. And, and a lot of white people were afraid of black people, you know. I know a lot of white people were afraid of black people because not all of them were. In fact, some of them were very brave and they died, of course, during this, situ- during this time. They could have just, you know, not gotten involved. So they were, they were very brave people. You know, and I know about the the history of the Underground Railroad, and in fact, a lot of black people they they uh, were mixed, and they looked white, and they were able to uh, save a lot of black people because they were white or or or, or looked like white. So, uh, but but I do know some uh, most white people that I knew were afraid of black people, and they really uh, were were just. Uh, misinformed, it, or, or they were just always, you know, it was this whole um, propaganda against uh, black people that you could see just from uh, the TV, from, from the news, and how they portrayed black people. So, of course, a lot of white people didn't really want to associate with black people because of, for many reasons, yes. but many did. Uh, and, and so it was always, uh, you know this whole different idea that that some people white people had the way you feel about people is it's very easy it's hard to hide it you know it's really hard to hide it and and at that time people didn't have to hide it because at that time you know you were just being allowed to go that was the beginning of people being allowed to go into a store you know at that time you know so it was just very overt, just the racism that people had. It wasn't something that was very hidden, so. And, and how it made you feel was you felt angry, basically. I've tried to focus on uh, just myself, trying to figure out how, to, to, how, how I want to live my life, what I want to do, because I didn't have a clue. For me, I just felt, you know, some anger, but I, like I said, I never focused on, on, the, on the negative people. I try to focus on the positive people, you know? And uh, so it didn't really make me like resentful so much, you know? Uh, I just knew I had a situation where I just had to deal with it, you know? And I, I tried to deal with it the best way I could. So, and like I said, I had a grandfather who grew up, who, who I saw how he was dealing with it because he had a good job. He, he, uh, he worked uh, at the airport and um, he was a mechanic also, so he worked constantly, you know? So, and I just saw the way he lived and I just, that was my template, you know, of something that, and he was a resentful person. He was more Native American than anything. He looked like a Native American person. And uh, so he was just a person that he, he, you know, some black people probably didn't like him. You know, because some people are like that, even though a lot of black people are mixed in Native American, but like this whole world, people are, are, you know, they don't understand and so they just sort of, of, unless you are like them, exactly like them, if you're a light skinned black person or you're a medium skinned light person, everyone has these different ideas about who they are as black people. So. And uh, my family was all mixed up, black, light-skinned, and we were totally mixed up, white even properly, I'm sure, in my family. So it was like, <laughs> it's hard to be prejudiced because we're all mixed up, you know? One of the experiences I think I experienced uh, as a black man in the South growing up as young, a young person, like, I wasn't always drawing, and my drawings, I think sometimes people always associate black people with, with being angry. And I, you know, it, it, and that some some of the images that I would draw, they had uh, what well, you could, you could look at them as anger. But if I was a white teenager, it would be totally different. So it's funny how I just learned how people look at black people, and they already they have this idea about oh you're angry and it's because you're black or whatever, and then they already put this, you in this box because you're a black person, you're angry, because, and you don't like white people, but. So for me, it was just how people saw me. I didn't even know what I was. I didn't know I was a black person. I didn't know. So I, I had uh, mixed experiences, but, but basically I always was around by bad people who, in my family, who, 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 who I didn't feel like this, this, this total resentment. I felt it's good and the bad. It was never just the bad. It was always the good and the bad. I was in Madison, Wisconsin, for graduate, but that was a town that was very, very much a liberal town. I was in Atlanta before then, so so moving from Atlanta to Wisconsin and Madison, Wisconsin, which was a college town, it was amazing. Like in Atlanta, it was there's a lot of people there, a lot of black people there with a lot of power. They had it was a, I and mean, that's why people were there. So and when I was there, it was already uh, different in the sense that. You saw black people doing very well, making money economically. You know, and doing things. So that was already there. And, and but in, in Wisconsin, you didn't really see a lot of black people. But I felt, you know, accepted there. I would feel safe walking down the street. In the South, you really don't feel safe walking down the street if you're a black person. But I remember toward the end, when I was leaving there, after three years, that things were starting to change. And I remember being in a car and, and, and uh, being trailed in a car by a uh, police for about a mile at least. And then finally, he pulled me over because he said I had a faulty muffler. And he, and he, and he took me to be uh, hand, uh, fingerprinted and everything. And I, and I really knew it wasn't because of the faulty muffler, because I looked like a little bit different. And even as a black person, I looked a little bit different. I didn't look like a regular black person, right? You know, because even as a black person, it's very conservative, the idea. Of, of being a black youth. Like you have to be kind of like everyone else. And finally, I got the ticket and, and, and I didn't get put in the cell, I was in the holding room. But I knew it was, I felt it was different, it was doing to change. But I would say it was always a, a, a situation where people did not have that idea about black people that they had growing up when I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. So in 1983, I moved here to New York because I had friends here already who were from Madison, Wisconsin, and they told me, please come, we have a place for you. So I moved here, and of course, right away, we moved to the Lower East Side with my friends, and it was the first time in my life I felt like right at home, like this was the place for me. I, I just already felt like that. First of all, there were all kinds of people around there. That's number one. And it was just an energy that was there. You know, you can't put your finger on it, but it's just a—it's just the energy around you. The—the—the um, just—it the, was vibrant. It was uh, good, bad. You had drugs. You had—it wasn't gentrified at that time. The Lower East Side, uh, and it was a pretty Hispanic area. It wasn't even a lot of black people over there at that time at all. I was just another artist, basically. You know, I mean, I was. You know, I couldn't get certain jobs, of course, you know. as a black person, I couldn't get like before, even you know before when I get a job, it was always in the restaurant, it had to be in the kitchen. I would you know, like some people they could be a waiter, right? I was not a waiter type. I didn't I didn't get them the all for that. not just because of a black person because you know, for whatever reason. but but also like, you know, here, even though it was a it was totally different. But you couldn't do certain things. I couldn't get certain jobs. Uh, I, you know, uh, So I, I was having to deal with, so for me, construction was the only kind of job I could get, which I loved in the end. Uh, but uh, I, I always felt like I knew people here, and I knew them from Wisconsin, and they were the people, you know, most of the people I knew were white people. And I, it's funny because uh, I always, had this idea about my friends, and who I, but I never choose my friends by what they look like, what their race was, what they said. It was just, you just meet people. So I, so, it was funny. I, I always thought, well, it was not, it would be nice to meet some black people, you know, because I, but, it, you know, I didn't meet that many, you know, because there were not very many around, you know. So, and I remember I would go to, to, um, see music videos. I would go to CBGB's. It was punk, rock, and rock which I like that kind of music also. And so uh, you, you, uh, uh, you just met the people and, and, uh, and all the people in that area, in that situation, they were basically people that were artists or musicians or whatever. So you feel basically like you could relate to each other. And uh, we all had similar ideas about what we uh, felt was important to us. As an artist, and I'm a black artist, even though I may not see myself that way. The world sees me that way. I'm just an artist. And when I'm painting, I don't think I'm, I don't, I just, I have my experiences. So, and, and since I grew up experiencing being a black person, uh, I have that. But, but when I'm making my, when I'm, when you're creating art, you really, you just have your experience, which is something that's very abstract. You know, you know, you do you don't see yourself as a black artist. Or white, or, you know. I just think you see yourself as an artist, right? But you are a black artist because of what you go through, and that's how people see you. So it's it's how you know perception is everything. And I know what happened to me as a kid. The first thing I remember is, uh, is being in, in school and seeing a, an artist, a black artist, and he, and he did some drawings, and how I, it was like the, you know something that really affected me. And I know how hard it is for. A, for people of color to just have any kind of a hope, sometimes, because you have to go against so much. So for me, it's, it's very important that I do whatever I can to just help out whatever I can, to just sort of give back, I think. And that's why, for me, it was so important that 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 young people can see something in the neighborhood that that they have exposure to that world is a possibility, you know? So, and I noticed since being here and opening up the space, how how it affects people, you know? And so, and I didn't realize to what degree when I first opened the, the gates up, because for years I had it down, because it was just, uh, it wasn't really fixed up and I was just trying to work uh, in the dark here. So when I realized how it had affected people, I was, it just really encouraged me more to do it. So. For me, I, I get so much back, you know, from that, you know, doing it. And it's 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 something that I, I feel like it just if you don't do it, you're just really not doing the right thing, I think, you know? I think the audience is very valuable and, and many people don't see it that way. But but it's because of uh, the experience that we have. Like 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 I as a kid I remember, you know, it it was something that It wasn't as valued because in the United States, it's not like in some other countries where it's something that was always ingrained. And in the South, it wasn't something that was valued so much in the South where I grew up. You know, it was just something on the periphery. It wasn't something that you could do for a living. It wasn't something that was important, especially visual art. Art has influenced me uh, because first of all, like it's a therapy because whenever you do something, uh, first of all, I also, I'm, I'm pretty good at it, I could do it, you know, and I practice and I work really hard at it and it gave me focus and it keeps me grounded, you know, it keeps me humble, it keeps me working hard and it keeps me realizing that you're never going to get there, you're always going to be going to get there, you're never going to get there. So, and, and, and you're going to learn a lot about yourself and, and also when you when you art, when you're in art, you spend time alone, so you, you have to get to know yourself if you're an artist. You, you, and you have to kind of like yourself a little bit, it, it helped me just, I don't think I would be alive without it, to be honest with you, you know. I always felt like when I was growing up as a kid, you know, cause most people don't think they're gonna live very long and I didn't either. I thought, well, I don't know how, I just don't know what's gonna happen because I know how the world is. And I know as a black person, you know, anything may happen at any time. And I know situations happen. So for me, all, it, it kind of gave me uh, uh, a grounding, and I, I, I was able to get in touch with myself, and I was able to get out a lot of uh, get out a lot of things and that, I, that I needed to get out, like just expressing myself, expressing the feelings that I have. And I also uh, I, it, it, it enabled me to go to college, go to graduate school, enabled me to move to New York, It enabled me to do a lot of things. It can, it can give you a lot of freedom because then you're not afraid to be different, you know? Because you feel like it's actually good to be different. So back then it wasn't good to be different. Now it's actually okay to be different. So that's what I, for me being an artist, it was just freeing. It was, I could do whatever I wanted to do and it was okay. So once a year, I open up my studio uh, slash gallery to showcase young people's art. In, in, in the neighborhood. I've seen a lot of potential, I've seen, and, 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 and not that that's the main thing, because it's mainly just to have the, the conversation and having it out there, but I've also seen the very good art that's that got, got really, really potential to do a lot, you know? The one impact that it had on the community is that it creates some excitement a little bit. And, I, and also, it, 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 you, you meet other people and you, and you make friends. Like I met a lot of uh, young people over here, which is which is great because I, I like interacting with teenagers, in fact. I feel like I'm like a teenager. <laughs> I listen to the same kind of music. Anyway, so I met a lot of people over here, teenagers, and, 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 uh, and they're the artists, and I, and I try to encourage them. And I remember meeting a person, I, if I have any materials, I say, oh, you need some canvas or you need this. I'll, so anything that I could do to, to encourage people, I try to do it. And mainly just seeing another person do it and when they come in, they see what I'm doing, that's already encouraging. I mean, I just do what I can do, right? I don't think, I think that you don't have to be like at the, at some famous person to be in a, a, like a big influence. You could be anybody, you know? Because I've been influenced by people you know, homeless people or, or people with nothing. But, so I don't think you have to have all this position to be an influence, I don't. Uh, so, and for me it's important to, to, to do whatever I can do because, because it also is good for me too, because I think that you, whenever you do something that's, that's helping other people, is also gonna be helping you, I think. It's just, it's just, you cannot get around it, I think. So I think, you know, that's how it works. You know, you try to do whatever little thing you can do. It's just normal, I think, for, for me, you know, that you do things like that. You know, I just think it's just a normal thing. You know?
0: Hey, listeners, thanks so much for joining us on our very first episode of Cross Streets and for our conversation with artist Ron Taylor. I love that piece of wisdom that he left us with. Do whatever little thing you can do. He is so cool.
1: He's really cool.
0: Yeah, it was it was really sweet getting to interview him. I went to his artist studio on Saint John's Place in Crown okay. Heights. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful space. He makes magnificent paintings, incredibly wow. colorful, wall-sized abstract paintings that are so expressive and robust and just absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, and they're just all over the walls of his gallery. So getting right. to be in there and getting to talk to him about his life and watching him speak with these beautiful paintings in the background was such a, it's such an honor. Yeah, of course. Um, but man, I was really moved by Ron's story. It was, I mean, particularly that he was able to remain so hopeful and just to persevere through such difficulty, everything he went through as a, at such a young age right, in the era that he grew up in.
1: He's not, he's not blind to it, but he didn't sound as if he was someone who was carrying bitterness or just a lot of like pain from it. Mm -hmm. You know, he recognized, it it was a realist approach to it. He wasn't, you know, painting it over with, you know, rose colored glasses or anything like that, but he really seemed to just accept it for what it was and and understand it, you know. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean he's the ol- he's the oldest person we've gotten to interview yes, thus this far. This is true. This um, is true. And yeah, what an honor to get to hear from someone who grew up during the civil rights movement in right. Alabama. Yeah. it's really it's even more beautiful that he's able to to talk to us now with such hope and with such um, joy. Um, and that his art has really fed him in really um, powerful
1: ways it makes me wonder like with you having seen the art would you put it in the category of being like cathartic like does it seem as if something's being released definitely okay yeah
0: absolutely yeah it's 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 like this controlled chaos nice yeah and the colors he uses and the shapes and forms that that are displayed in all of his paintings and the size of the paintings they're like explosive yeah, yeah um and really really gorgeous
1: that's terrific yeah yeah so before we got on air i was just really um taking it back is not the right phrase but really just attentive to how um much ron would speak about like his white friends and I was sharing um, with Brittany off air that in a conversation with another um, black man who grew up in you know similar circumstances, like uh, you know went to went to private school, and, and as a result has a lot of white friends. Um, and we both were talking about how, as a black man, I'm sure as a black woman, but we can't speak for black women because I'm, I'm I'm not a black woman, but um, as a black man, in my experience, having white friends is a lot like going to the pool. Like you, like you can swim and like enjoy yourself, but oftentimes you'll find yourself in the deep end and you're not that confident a swimmer. Mm. Or it's, it's sort of like, you know, going out but having to make sure you have a way home that you're not just relying on the goodwill of your friends or you're like, oh, if someone give me a swipe since we're in New York City or someone, um, I can share a lift with someone or something. Like, you had to know how to get home. And, and it's just simply because the consequences, especially as an adolescent, were not the same. The safety nets were not the same. And as much as you all were friends and the friendship was genuine, there were certain things that – um inevitably would separate you and inevitably you would have to encounter that difference. You could not in all honesty live your lives in a colorblind way that's not a a privilege or luxury that you could afford. And so there was always a sense of like, let me make sure I don't go too deep in these waters or let me make sure that I, I, I know how to get back to the crib because it's just there's a cost to it and there's a risk to it and if you're not careful about it if you're not conscious of those things it can lead to a tragedy
0: mm. yeah. is it kind of like you've you looking out for yourself like you kind of had to take care of your own because you, it was like a trust and a not being able to rely on your white friends
1: because not and not because you think that they're just like malicious and there's like a wicked undertone i'm not i'm not saying that i'm sure that's happened in some people's lives obviously but that's happened like with any group of friends right but what, what i'm talking about more is like there are things in life that are unsaid yet understood and if you don't understand if it's not something and it's not being said then we're going to be stuck, or I'm going to be stuck, more more, more likely. And, and if you care, I guess it's, it would be a we if, like, you care about me, but you don't feel like there's anything you can do about mm. me being jammed up now. Mm-hmm. So the things that you don't, as a white person, you just don't have to be prepared for, mm-hmm. that if you take me into a situation, that, um, I, I'll just give you one that's, like, trivial. So, like, I remember, and this is as an adult, so I remember, like, my first year in seminary, we went to, um, there's a lot of bars in Richmond, Virginia. And I remember feeling like super uncomfortable when my classmates took me to this bar that just had like mad German flags everywhere. And just like, I was like, yo, like, I don't know if this is going to be a good idea. And right. then they wanted to go with me to a um, a bar on like the black side of town. It's like, yeah, let's, let's just go to, I think the place was called, let's say the place called like, Chuck's. Let's go to Chuck's. And I was like, I don't, like, y'all are kind of, like, making, like, a parody of it. Like, I don't know nobody at Chuck's, number one. Like, we, I would just be walking in there a stranger just like you. So, I don't know what kind of situation we'd be walking into. And I remember, like, literally, like, being in the parking lot of the place. Um, like, leaving the German spot and um, eventually, like, going to... Um, the parking lot of Chucks and me and another classmate, a classmate who was white, but just had sense, no other way to put it. Like, we just were like, nah, we're not going to Chucks. Like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. Um, And it's just little things like that. Like, it was playful. It wasn't malicious. No one was trying to get anyone hurt, but there yeah. was just a sense of like, you don't understand how this could go.
0: Right. There's still some kind of ignorance. There's
1: some ignorance there. And it's like, nice, in know, perverted sense that you get to be so like ignorant mm-hmm. and without yeah. without penalty right. but i was just like nah i don't know the city i don't know this neighborhood i don't yeah. know that store. that right. store
0: even as a black man going yeah, to a black uh, quote place a, black,
1: a quote unquote black place i was like with a whole bunch of just like corny white guys you know from seminary like i was like this doesn't seem like a good idea, like. Right. You know, so I just remember um, – so I just use that as a – and that's a trivial example. I'll be the first to admit. But I use that as an example of my larger point, which is that it's it's a stumbling block. It's something that um, hurts the relationship from having, like, a fullness to It's like if you don't know the rules I have to play by. Yeah. Because if you think I'm playing the same game you're playing, you're not paying attention. Yeah.
0: So kind of understanding, like, the context that you're living in. Being a different reality
1: than what I'm living in, totally different right? reality, in the
0: way that we converse, and the way that we interact, and the things that we do.
1: Everything is different, right? Everything is different, right. and if you can't honor that, then you like if you if you're so adamant that what I'm saying, if you're listening to this right now, and you're so adamant that like what I'm saying is untrue, then I feel sorry for you because there's a lot that you need to um like peel back and, and wrestle with, and, and really consider and, and the reality is that in the united states the life of black people and white people is not a synonymous reality mm-hmm. we're not there
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, there's a lot of data that someone could share with you about like you know income inequality wealth inequality things of that nature but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that would support it as well like we just don't have the same lives we yeah. don't have the same experiences and you can still have people have plenty of like healthy marriages healthy friendships all that stuff but at the same time they have to navigate the difference and if you're trying to pretend that there's no difference i i i I pity you because you're, you're not paying attention to context
0: right yeah ron talked about as a kid his family his parents specifically i think Um, really taught him to respect all people Mm -hmm. and even growing up in, in Birmingham, Alabama and and during the civil rights movement and his parents um, teaching him that it made me wonder, what was your experience growing up with, with your family? Um, what was your understanding and sort of like awareness of white people, white culture, um, the difference between the ways that white people were treated versus the ways that you were treated and what was kind of like that dialogue between you and your your family
1: yeah I think my family taught me to um in a similar way to what Ron was saying yeah like like, to just respect people and and, and treat people well you Mm -hmm. know um I I think I more learned it from like my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's crazy to think as you were asking the question, I, I, I thought about how much like the O.J. Simpson trial really shaped my view on, on, on race as a kid. Um, not that that was like my first encounter of race. Like obviously I had like white teachers and um, that's probably it, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, not until I went to middle school. But it, there's a sense of like you kind of knew that there was an unfairness in this world mm-hmm. and, and in this country, but also just like in this world that, that white people just had it better. And you didn't know, necessarily know like how, like maybe you thought as a kid that like all white people were rich. Obviously that's not true. Maybe you thought that they just had an easier life or however you would define it. But you just knew that somewhere along the way, um, maybe it started at slavery but you just knew that black people didn't get, like, a fair shake. Yeah. Um, that was just something that was just in the zeitgeist. It's not even, like, my mom or grandmother sitting down and being, like, this country is terrible toward black people. It, was, it wasn't that. Because for my family context coming from Jamaica, like, my mom often tells the story about how her father spoke to her and they were getting ready to um, emigrate to the United States and said, you know, like, talking to my mother like sandra in this country that we're going to they don't treat black people well and she's like mm-hmm. what because she never thought of herself as black until she came to the united states mm-hmm. she always um she she if she were here she'd bring it up right now she always talks about growing up with um white friends and Asian friends and, and, and Indian friends, like uh, 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 the diversity and richness of Jamaica, just just being all Jamaicans. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure like obviously I I would you know listen to it lovingly, but just through the lens of like understanding colonialism and everything that that comes with that. But it didn't manifest itself in the same way that it does in the United States. It didn't manifest itself in the same way that like Ron's life in Birmingham, did even though they're around the same like time period it, it just did not manifest itself in that way and so there's something to be said about just knowing like i i, I will hear it even um in my toddler who i don't talk about race with mm, i don't I remember you telling me about yeah this. i don't sit there and and show him like you know um sean king posts on, on social media like but I just remember, um, I think this is like, when he was two. He wasn't even three yet. Him just saying, like, Daddy, be careful. The police will hurt you. Mm-hmm. I was like, how does he know that is a possibility? Now, I don't think there was a, um, a, you know, sometimes we had these cyclical, like, police shootings that just make you, like, you know, go on edge. But there was nothing that I can remember I wasn't like, oh, gotta go, you know, watch this. Like, there was nothing that he was exposed to that I know of that let him know that, but he just said it. And I was like, is he just like paying attention? Is it just in the air for him? You know, like, how does he, how is he absorbing this? Right. And there's so many messages that our children get, both spoken and unspoken, going back to the whole like unwritten rules things. Like, why is it that my um, son growing up here in, in, in central Brooklyn, knows that and is probably a kid in like bay ridge not even gonna go that far like in bay ridge or sheep's bay who like loves the police and can't wait to be a cop <laughs> like why is that right you know
0: yeah it made me wonder for you growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood in bed Stuy, yeah um you, you said you had white teachers in school right what was that dialogue in school like because for me and i think i've shared this with you before i didn't learn that much about slavery or black history in america when i was in elementary school wow like literally just things that i absolutely should have learned about because they are part of our country's history was just conveniently avoided yeah um And I knew a little bit, but Uh it was certainly not talked about in a way where I would explicitly, yeah, exactly, and have like a comprehensive understanding of what it is. Um, And I'm curious, like for you in school, was that? I mean, did you learn about these things in school?
1: I I will almost go so far to say, I I like I don't want to be dramatic, but I think I learned the most Black history I learned in school, in elementary school. Wow. Yeah. I think I really do believe that to be true because my school was uh, Israel Putnam school. And then some parents were like, you know, I think Israel Putnam was like a Revolutionary War general. And I think somebody or some parents maybe were like, that guy owned slaves and had a big movement to get the school renamed. And the school was renamed the Marcus Garvey School. Wow, and I learned so much about blackness at that school, and it wasn't, and it wasn't like, you know, you're cognizant, like, wow, I'm learning about blackness. This is such a treat. You're like seven. I we would sing "Lift Every Voice" every morning. I learned about Denmark Vesey. We learned about Langston Hughes. We learned about Phyllis Wheatley. We learned about um, contemporary black figures. My my teacher, my science teacher, stopped the class to say. Thurgood Marshall just died. It's like 1993. Like, Thurgood Marshall just died. You all need to understand how important Thurgood Marshall was. We're in science class. Wow. I'm in, like, second grade. And this woman is, like, telling us about the importance of Thurgood Marshall in my science class. All right? They didn't do Like, Packer is my high school and middle school. Wonderful place. Great private school in, in, in downtown Brooklyn. Was not like that at all. You wow. know what I'm saying? So, it's almost like blackness was just the default mm-hmm. and it's something that um it's rare for a lot of people especially um people who like leave little settings like what I'm talking about and go into like majority white environments you just like crave that again because most like most times when like black history is approached in our schools or just in general, its approach as an elective and something that created a a, a righteous fury in my heart when I got to seminary was why is it that everything that deals with people who look like me is an elective? Hmm. So technically someone can get a degree from this place and never have to learn about anyone that looks like me. And every class I want to take that deals with people who look like me, that's like necessary for my soul is just an elective. It's Mm -hmm. just an add on. So I have to do extra work in order to learn what I need to learn. And that's something that I think most black folks understand is like, you know, I had my my English professor, my advisor in college who said like, she can't come in there. She's um, Caribbean American. She can't come in there and just know VS Naipaul and Derek Walcott. She has to know V. S. Naipaul's work and Derek Walcott's work on top of Henry James's work and Robert Frost's work and all these folks and Shakespeare's work and, yeah. and, and these people. You can't like you we don't as black people, we don't have the luxury of just being good at our stuff. Mm-hmm. We gotta be good at like everybody's stuff and our stuff. Mm-hmm. Because if we just try to focus on on this, we'll get pushed to the side. You know, like I, I teach um English and special ed, but you know most of my, my focus um, has been in English, and I want to teach hip hop English. Hip hop ELA is a class I've taught before. It's an elective class, but it's something I try to infuse into all of my classes. I can't. I'm not at the, the a place of luxury to like forsake teaching Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade. And be like, nah, I don't feel like teaching that. I'm gonna teach um, LL Cool J's love songs. That's what that's what we're gonna. Do. I can't do that, <laughs> and so I have to know my stuff and the um, the systems things. Like, I have to I have to do that work because otherwise, my kids will perish because they they won't know the stuff I have to give them, and then they won't be able to like converse with another teacher because I'm not gonna teach them forever. They're gonna be stuck. Right. What do you mean? Like, you know, you don't you don't know who Robert Frost is? What's wrong with you? Mm. Who taught you? You know what I mean? Like that's that's how it'll be received. So it's just this sense of like we've always had to do the extra work.
0: What kind of influence do teachers like you and your peers have now on promoting um black history to be a part of the process of education for young people?
1: Well, there's been concerted efforts to expand the canon Mm -hmm. you know like there's you know folks of of all shades who are just tired of reading dead white men yeah you know and it's funny because i i feel like i fall on the side of like i'm interested in reading classics but at the same time i want to see us get to a, a juncture where we can engage current authors who are speaking to our stories or black authors who've been, you know, forgotten for a variety of reasons. I want to see us engage those texts as well and have a conversation. Like, there's no, it, it, there's, there's nothing to me that says that like Zora Neale Hurston shouldn't be a larger part of the canon. You know what I mean? Like, if you read this woman's work, it's incredible, impactful, and speaks to what we're talking about on a day-to-day. There's nothing that says to me that Lorraine Hansberry shouldn't be read, you know? And, and and not just in some cute way where we're looking at a raisin in the sun and we move on. Like, let's really dive into the work that these folks did. And and let's dive into the work that contemporary writers are doing now, you know? Like, it, it's important. Students need, I, I'm of the mindset that students need to see themselves in the text. Mm. It can't just be something like even if you're teaching Romeo and Juliet, and sometimes we've you know we've done things like uh, was it um, sharks and jets like the 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 classic um, movie that West Side Story. That's my mom was slipping. So like we we've had we have things like that, but like how often are teachers venturing to put the students into the text?
0: Yeah,
1: that, that's that has to happen. Mm-hmm. That that's a critical aspect of it. Otherwise. You're not going to have any buying. You're going to be so removed from it. Like, why do I need to care about this, like, family in Italy? Like, I'm mm. I'm not in Italy. I've never been to Italy. I don't feel like pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you can't bring the text to life, then you, you're failing them, you know? Yeah. Like, my favorite um, time was when I was, you know, teaching across uh grade levels but in one class we were dealing with fences by August Wilson and in another class we were deconstructing um UGK and Outcast International Players Anthem and just like really being able to like dive into like the traditional sense of like reading an August Wilson play but also seeing how um there are worthwhile things things that can help prepare you for the regions and other uh standardized tests and and just write and make you a better writer in general that like Andre 3000 uses a hell of a lot of literary devices you know what I mean like so Mm -hmm. being able to like legitimize um, current culture and popular culture um, in the eyes of you know the powers that be is something that's important to me but also empowering the students to see themselves in the text and be like oh like when I'm listening to Travis Scott, like Travis Scott is using like rhetorical devices as well. Like that's, that's, that's lit <laughs> to, to quote Travis. Like, I think, I think it's important to do that. Otherwise we're going to lose people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something that Ron also mentioned, Um, I think it was when he was younger, but he talked about the way that people perceived him and perception being everything and yeah, yeah. um, being a black artist, but also just as a black, as a young black man, he mentioned um, being seen as angry and quote, not liking white people mm-hmm. just because he was black. Right. And I'm curious like what your thoughts are on that. Like, is that sort of a, has that tended to be a given Um, in the ways that you've also felt like white people perceive you as like, you're black so you're angry and you don't you probably don't like white people or like what is what is perception mm-hmm. and how what's that role like played in your life
1: it's it's funny because this question makes me think of two things one is like james baldwin's um fantastic quote about like to be black in america is to be angry all the time mm-hmm. which i have embraced more and more the older i get yeah um but on the flip side of it like i didn't i never encountered it in terms of, like, people... I mean, there's been moments where people have assumed I'm angry about stuff, but I've more encountered it through, like, fear. And fear that there is an anger there. I guess, yeah, so I suppose that that is what you're saying. Like, this sense of that, like, no matter, like, how friendly I can be or, like, well-spoken or whatever, this sense of, like, he can always get to a point of rage. And I, I, I do believe that part of that is... And, you know, this is my, my theory on things. Like, I, I do believe part of it is that we're so not removed from slavery that there's always this, like, fear of revolt that mm-hmm. white people have. Yeah. You know, it could be at your job, you know, and you as a black person, you know, are laughing with other black people. And then someone's like, wait, what are you guys talking about? Like, it can be some a microaggression on that level, but there's always this sense of, like, like, we're, we're so not removed from the plantation that there's always this sense of, like, they're uprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this this latent fear that, you know, can sometimes be very deadly for black people because, it, you know, fear makes you do irrational things. Um, I, I really um admire that he saw him, that he wants to just be an artist. That he understands himself as an artist. Ron is an artist, Period but he understood the importance of perception. And sometimes I wrestle with that because I've gotten to a point now in my life journey and my thoughts about this stuff where I do not care about what white people think. And hear me now that the gaze, the gaze of um, what they call it, like the white gaze is something that can be so, um, paralyzing like I'm thinking this again like the trivial way Nicki Minaj and, and Cardi B got in a fight at like fashion week and there was a response to it that was like how could you all do this in front of white people and it's like who cares like it, like I'm I'm not here to try to impress you or legitimize my presence and in my day-to-day life there's a sense of like look I can't live my life begging for your acceptance or acknowledgement mm. like i just don't care anymore mm-hmm. i did care when i was younger because i didn't know any better but now there it's it's so meaningless to me like i'm just going to live my life excellently and if you appreciate that good for you but if you don't it's your loss i can't afford to cuz we've had too many people too many in the cloud of of black witnesses who have you know perished and never been acknowledged by, by the so-called, like, white mainstream. Or at best, if I'm excellent, they'll just find a white person to compare me to. Yeah. Like, let's say we do really well at this podcast. And they'll be like, wow, Chris is like the white Howard, uh, the black Howard Stern or something. I don't want that.
0: <laughs> I don't <laughs> like, want that either. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, he's, he's like the black Walter Cronkite. I don't want, be, I want, I want that one to be me. Yeah. You know, so I respect where Ron is coming from, but at the same time, I appreciate that he understands um, how he's being perceived. And it's not to me just like trying to acquiesce himself to white people, but just being like, this is good art. And, you know, it's made by a black person, sure, but it's art. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I respect that.
0: Right. It's not even honestly. It's not even a thought that crosses my mind whenever yeah. I'm like creating or something. It's like I'm Brit. I'm a I'm a woman, and yeah. I live in New York City, and I sure. like to tell stories about people, and so I do these things. And I literally don't think once I've been like, and I'm a white woman yeah. doing these things. It's right, like, right. It's ever. never so to hear you and to hear on like talk about it in that way is just it's really enlightening.
1: Right. Right, we're just giving you game. We're showing you the rules that, yeah. that you don't have to live by. You know what I mean? Like it, it's it's something that um, I don't even consider it like unfortunate because it's just so like, it's so it's so oxygen. Like yeah. <laughs> it's just what it is. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you this. Like I I, I view public speaking as an art, right? And, and been thankful and fortunate to do it a lot of times. And when I was in school. Like high school and college, the amount of Martin Luther King comparisons I received were out of this world. The amount of times I've been told that I'm articulate mm. is just too many. And I remember um, dating a white girl and, and complaining about it to her, and she was like, "Well, oh, no, they just they just mean they just mean you're speaking great." And I was like, "This isn't gonna work." Like, it's like mm. immediately, just like you really don't understand like how it's just so not even humiliating but it's almost like you, you're treating me like I'm bringing you a macaroni necklace right now mm-hmm. you know like this was what I did up there was really good you know not to sound terrible but like you know it was really good it was good art I and it. for you to just be like oh man that was so good for a black guy that's all I'm hearing you know and it's it's really really just um like it was annoying and then it sometimes became infuriating because like mm. you're not even listening to me you are just filling a box you know
0: i'm sorry about that
1: well it's not it wasn't you i know it's still, it's just, yeah. <laughs> you know mm. it wasn't you I, I, I just feel like you can't um like the the vastness of like what white supremacy has done it's like who can apologize for it
0: no yeah
1: all you can do is do better in your own life definitely yeah it's just too much It's be like it's so presumptuous to be like i apologize for like 500 years of slavery and oppression (laughs) it's like all right you gotta pay me some money for that (laughs) you know what i mean like it's like what's words yeah Yeah.
0: there are there are actions to be to be taken actions 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 a couple of actions um Actually, is uh Ron briefly mentioned this in his interview, but he is a part of the Arts to End Violence Festival here locally in Brooklyn. Um, so that's one thing that our listeners can do is oh, yeah, go and support um the local youth in Crown Heights and mm-hmm. in um, Bed Stuy. Um, it's usually in April and Uh, For the last several years, Ron has actually hosted the Arts and Violence Festival um, and Gallery Show in his gallery uh, in Crown Heights. So you can Google that and find that. We'll also include it um, below. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so in addition to that, I think making an effort to see shows in your community at smaller galleries to support local artists Mm -hmm. and not just visiting well-known museums is another great way to learn about people around you and to get to know your neighbors.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, going beyond your comfort zone. Exactly. Um, I know that there's a lot of schools that have like galleries, like so. For example, um, the school where I work, it's like a school for the arts, and so in your local community, like just walk. Like honestly, it it can be as simple as walking to your nearest high school and just asking them if they need like a donation of supplies yeah, and how and and how you can support. Because if you take it on that local level of trying to be like a patron of the arts in that way, you know, su- supporting, like going to like a local school play, like if they're having a musical and stuff like that, whatever it is, that really does make a difference. You really can make an impact on that personal level. Sometimes I think we understand the magnitude of these problems or we we're, glimpse it and we're like oh we gotta solve all of it no just try to start on the most local level like what art is being created by young people in your immediate environment and try to be a patron try to take care of them mm,
0: I love that yeah there's a lot of need out there too yeah. just for being able to contribute to sending kids to creative camps and different yes. art programs and mm-hmm. things like that so Those things cost money definitely <laughs> <laughs> sure does yeah Well, guys, we are so thankful that you joined us today and for just contributing to the conversation. We hope you enjoyed our time with Ron and that you've got some practical takeaways to try out in your own lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys so much.
0: (laughs) Talk to you next time.